Dear Pastor Ray Winkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least possibly understand why I felt that I had to do this. 1. I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. 2. But that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. 3. With Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. 4. Also, with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon, but when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutsi wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through. But this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, Mother got involved, because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all, from the hymn book. That was the least that I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated. Please see to it that the costs are kept low. For Mother, she has a plot at the Frankenmuth Church Cemetery. Please contact Mr. Herman Shelkus, Route 4, Vassar, Michigan, 41768. He's married to a niece of Mother's and knows what arrangements are to be made. She always wanted Reverend Herman Zender of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he's not well. Also, I'm leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. Mrs. Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Mrs. Eva Meyer, Helen's mother. Jean Seifert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. 
Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way that I hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. Pastor, Mrs. Morris may possibly be reached at 802 Pleasant Hill Drive, Elkin, home of her sister. One other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them, whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. hundred percent. I, I am the dead person in this. Yeah, you you really are. Oh, no. So thanks to John, our editor extraordinaire, and Leslie's husband for uh, doing the opening for us this week. Oh, thanks, babe. <laughs> <laughs> that won't stay with you at all. Uh-uh. You're fine. Don't mm. worry about it. <laughs> yep. Um, and the, the opening was, of course, um, John List's confession letter, which we will talk about later. But he wrote that. I didn't. So... That makes it worse. And John did not write that either. Oh, My John. No, he didn't just write any of it. John List. <gasps> That's right. Also a John. Yeah. Yeesh. But he's J-O-N and John List is J-O-H-N. That's very true. He is. Yeah. So. It's not the same. Okay. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Hallie. Hey, Fiends. Well, we are back. <laughs> yes, air horn. <laughs> COVID got me for a minute, but I'm back. Couldn't keep me down. Not a chance. It did for a little while. It sure did. Ooh, it was bad. <laughs> Guys, COVID is wild. I had so many of the weird symptoms and like not all of the normal human symptoms. That's on par for you. Though. Yeah, it is. That's true. 
on the nose. Everyone's like, mm, I had so much snot and I coughed so much. And I'm like, oh, my gallbladder hurt. I didn't have any snot. I, I mean, I like, barely coughed. Yeah, I don't cough much. I had like one day where it was like tickly more so. Mm-hmm. And you can still hear it in my voice a little bit. Like I'm a little more nasal, but it's just congestion. I never had like a runny nose or any of that. Yeah. Weird. I didn't have any of those things, but I had lots of weird, painful things and I was swollen in weird places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. And I just like wasted away a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. My appetite is still weird. Did it do anything to your appetite? Yeah, just for those days. I did like a lot of, I guess I might have had like a lot of broths then. I don't know. I just don't have my, my hungry sensor hasn't yeah, really Yeah, I didn't back. really want to eat. I did when I first got sick, but like I still have trouble. Like I'll get like three quarters of the way through the day and I'll be like, I haven't eaten anything. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. my like logic sensor that's telling me to eat, not my stomach. Honestly, it might be why, because I do intermittent fasting. Oh, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it honestly might be why I can easily do it. Oh, maybe it, it made you yeah. successful at that. I, yeah. It could have. COVID does some weird shit. Because I, I just also, don't care about breakfast anymore. Yeah, I don't. I want to eat breakfast, but I just eat it like I do it at dinner. But like, I, I forget. I wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. I never forget my coffee. And I like yeah. just start doing stuff. Yep. And I remember at like one o'clock that I have not eaten anything yet. Yeah. Like right now, I did not eat dinner. Totally forgot. Yeah. It's, I, I also, and you said this happened to you too, lost my ability to regulate my body temperature totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. So I'm basically just a weird, sweaty, or freezing skeleton at this point. Yep. So attractive. Beautiful. It's on brand though. Sure is. All of it's on the nose. You're glistening. <laughs> it's like you know really pale and sweaty and skinny it's great yes and speaking of sweating and wasting away my skin is um pretty clearly not at its best right now Mm -hmm. though I am the same weight I was in 2002 Holly which is wild (sighs) I feel like I to be you right now (laughs) I, I don't know that it's great um I feel like I should like to have naked pictures taken soon because I will never be this skinny again. Right, because it is great. <laughs> I mean, it will be then, but it's not on purpose. I know. If it was on purpose, I'd be like, oh, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Five pounds of it like... or not. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I should like commemorate it or something. But in order to do that, I need to do something about my complexion. Mm-hmm. Now, I tried mm-hmm. some like thoughts and prayers, but they didn't do. That never works. It never works. It didn't do anything. <laughs> So it looks like I'll have to take some more drastic measures. Okay. And I read about a really great skin serum made Ooh. with a healthy dose of validation, a hill worth dying on. I love it. It's the best serum. And wouldn't you know it, our fiends can fill up our cups with this precious ingredient. Oh, tell me how. But how? You might be asking yourself. I, I did. Look at you doing it. I asked you, though. You did. Okay, we still fit. Okay. We're going to go with it. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. (laughs) Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And we really, 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 really want to move forward. More is more, after all. And with more support, you will be able to get more content. But if you're impatient about that last one and you want even more, we would be dead in your life right now. You can support us over on Patreon. 
where for just a few dollars a month, Patreon is so fun. It is. <laughs> for, for just a few dollars a month, our patrons enjoy access to all of our extra minisodes and 30-minute horror movies, plus our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, which is super fun. Patrons also get special giveaway opportunities, and Leslie just made some, like, really cool giveaway gifts. I sure did. You want them. You want them. Mm-hmm. I want them. So you clearly want them so bad. You'll also get special merch offers, gifts from us in the mail, and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all of that is a little much for your busy schedule, you can always simply just follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod everywhere and anywhere. Like our posts, share our posts, post our posts, <laughs> post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your mother in the attic. Oh, no. What's her name, Leslie? It's Dee Dee. Oh, no, Dee Dee. Poor Dee Dee. You got to get her out of the attic. I can't, I can't get her out myself. She's too heavy, according Apparently, to the letter. <laughs> Which is absurd because real DD is not. No, it's just <laughs> laziness is what that is. It was it was weakness on the part of our um, author in the beginning. John, get my mother out of the attic. Author. <laughs> Please don't leave her up there. Don't do it. That's terrible. <laughs> She's only been the best to you. She has. She's only the best to everyone all the time. Your mom is great. Yeah. But also, she would be like, Leslie, leave me in the attic. This is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so... It's just too tedious to go down the stairs. I don't look well any longer. Just no. leave me there and have a memorial service with better pictures, preferably you know the ones even, from your wedding. Don't even bother. I just don't waste your money on it. I, I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I love Leslie's mom so much. True story. Anyway. <laughs> throw me in a bag and just get it over with. Honestly, you guys, it's, just leave me up in the attic. Prop me up against the window. I could be a Halloween decoration. It's I don't, fine. I don't need to be a bother. <laughs> <laughs> I need flatbreads. Enjoy them later. But, like, at least put a nice fur coat on me. Thanks. That's the least we could do. <laughs> at least, yeah. At the very least. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> then your friends and poor Dee Dee can become fiends and we could all hang out together. Well, that sounds nice. She would host a great gathering for our people, though. Really would. There'd be such good snacks and wine. Oh, my God. She does the best, like, noshes. She really does. Yeah. Diane, we need, to, yeah. <laughs> we need to have a gathering. <laughs> Make that charcuterie board. <laughs> all right, then. I think that is about all I have uh, before we begin. Leslie, do you have anything to add this week? I did learn something <gasps> Tell this me. week that I thought was really fun. I want to hear it. Okay. So, you know hummingbirds? I sure do. Okay. Intimately. (laughs) So, hummingbirds, we always talk about them. um, People study them thinking they have, like, the best metabolism. They're 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 very small. Right. They're very small and they move all the time. Right. So, it's like, how can we get a hummingbird metabolism? Well, apparently, hummingbirds eat all day. Mm. So, all day from the morning, from the minute they wake up till when they go to sleep, they get fatter and fatter throughout the day to the point where they are obese and practically diabetic. And then overnight, they fast. Every day? Every day. Jesus. <laughs> By the end of the day, they're like pre-diabetic. And then... This is wild. <laughs> and then when they wake up over fasting, they like however long they don't eat for, say it's like 12 hours, they like are fine again, and they go right back to their, like, original size. 
That's insane. They just yeah. blow up like a balloon and then deflate overnight. Yeah. I don't want that. I would love that. <laughs> the night part or the day part? But by the end of the, just enjoying my life and by the yeah. end of the day, I had no consequences. Yeah, no, I would like that too. I just it don't want to be, be like Groundhog Day without like having to like actually relive the whole day. Okay. Just be... All right. You just wake up thin every morning and just be like, yes, and schedule every photo shoot then. <laughs> yes. Now I'm going to eat cake for 12 hours. Yes. Because <laughs> tomorrow it won't matter. It's gone in the morning. Yeah. What do they do overnight? Their night must be awful. I mean, I assume that they like. They just they, shit and sweat and cry or whatever. I do assume that their metabolisms are really good. They must through be. The day and then overnight, like they're still burning fat. I saw a hummingbird perched in a tree at my parents' house, and it blew my mind. I'm like, you don't stop moving. Why are you just sitting there? It's too fat. It was. <laughs> it was tired. It was done. It was done. That was a good contribution this week. Thank Leslie. you. I really love weird facts with Leslie. <laughs> Maybe you need to bring some more to the table. I don't know. Only time will tell you guys. All right, then. On with the show. December 7th, 1971 was a mild day in Westfield, New Jersey. And do you know how I know that? How? An almanac! <gasps> oh, yes, our Jersey friends, as it turns out, do have almanacs that can tell you the weather back to, like, 1100. Yeah. Pretty nuts. Um, and, and that day was, um, like, between 45 and 53 degrees, foggy and, like, misty. Okay, I am I feel it. Mm -hmm. It's a good setting for, like, a scary thing, too. Yeah. Dr. Bill Cunnick looked out the window of his cozy home at the gloomy evening drizzle, glad to be inside. The neighborhood glowed with lighted windows of big families all up and down the block. It was close to Christmas, so people were, like, starting to put up their lights and decorations in Westfield, too, which is an affluent neighborhood, so it's probably really pretty. Mm -hmm. Dinners had been finished and dishes were washed and put away. Radios and televisions played, phone lines were tied up by teenagers, and thoughts of the upcoming holiday were surely making their tinselly way through everyone's minds. Bill's gaze lazily shifted outside his window until it landed on the mansion across the street. Now, a mansion across the street, for most of us, would be like a pretty noteworthy thing, right? Though I don't know, maybe we have some really wealthy fiends and they all live in mansions with mansion neighbors and little, like, mansions for their dogs. I love it. I knew you would. <laughs> I put in the dog mansions for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anything is possible. Yeah. But Westfield, New Jersey is not a place where one might be startled to find a mansion. There's a lot of them about. Mm -hmm. And we did talk about Westfield at length in our episode on the Watcher House because that's there too. Okay. So if you want to hear more about Westfield, you can go back and I'll tell you all about it. But it's an affluent town populated by wealthy families and has been this for a, over 100 years. This is due in no small part to the fact that it's 30 minutes outside of Manhattan, which makes Burr an easy commute for those who want a fast-paced, lucrative, professional city life, but a safe, quiet community uh, suburb to raise their kids in when they go home. So think New York City doctors and lawyers and, like, department store owners and fancy people like that. Mm. Right. But even for Westfield, Breeze Knoll was the kind of home you took notice of. After all, it's a home with a name, so, you know, they mean business. The post-Victorian era 19-room mansion, God, that's Damn. a lot. Of, I know, that's a lot of rooms, 
was situated at the end of the enviable Hillside Avenue. Hillside Avenue was in an obscured pocket of Westfield, too, so it's kind of like a safe little gated community where nothing bad ever happened. I assume everyone just went in their basement at night and dove in their money like Scrooge McDuck. It sh- <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It would. It should have been the cherry on top of the richly frosted cake that was this neighborhood. Mm, and cake. I know we talked a lot about cake tonight. And for a time, it was. That time just really wasn't 1971. Friesnall had fallen into a bit of disrepair over the years, which saddened the neighbors, but they kept their hopes up that maybe the owners would come along and restore it to its original glory. And its glory was considerable. Breeze Knoll was rumored to have a signed Tiffany skylight in the spacious first floor ballroom. Oh, man. Yeah, you heard me right. Ballroom. Tip? I know. And a system of bells that had been used to ring for the servants. Mm. Yes. That, that would have been me. <laughs> ring, ring. <laughs> yep. Breeze Knoll was not meant to be kept locked up, but that is how it had been for the past month. Locked up tight. Eccentric millionaire John Whitke... Witke, Witke, W-I-T-T-K-E, maybe Witke, if he's German, which you think he is. He definitely is. So we'll go with that. He had built Breeze Knoll at the turn of the last century for his sister Henrietta, who everyone just called Edda, which is cute. That is cute. The Witkes were a beloved fixture of Westfield, and they owned a corner store. They were active in the community. The Witke family had made a name for themselves, and they lived up to it. They didn't just have money. They also had, I don't know, a social presence, right? Yeah. You, people liked them. Etta had used the room that would later be known as the ballroom as an art gallery. And some people describe this room as as large as a basketball court. It's not that big, but it is really big. And she lined all the walls with art. So you could like walk the perimeter of the room and see paintings like you were in a museum. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And she also hosted weddings in it. Like she, her house was a wedding venue. She started with her sister Gertrude's ornate wedding in 1906. She hosted several weddings, held holiday parties and gatherings. She kept the gorgeous Breeze Knoll Manor filled with life and love. And that good spirit was transferred to most of its subsequent owners, including the Young family, who had raised their children there. The Youngs even had famed artist and illustrator and coincidentally neighbor, Harry Devlin, paint a mural inside the historic home. So this is cool because Harry Devlin was like a... He illustrated magazines at the time, and he was a painter, and he did, like, a bunch of famous children's books. I'll paint, I'll um, post some of his artwork, and you're going to recognize it. So there is a mural, or there was, at Breeze Knoll. It did, um, nine months after the murders, it mysteriously burned down. Oh. So it's no longer there. That's There's, sad. It is sad. It, it is sad, and it does suck. <laughs> it is sad. It is sucks. Um, <laughs> what was the artist name again? His name is Harry Devlin. But... We know nothing about the fire that eventually happened. I mean, absolutely nothing. We just know that it went up in flames and then it was done. There's another beautiful home on the on the property now. But anyway, um, oh yeah, I've I've seen these mm -hmm, the little witch books and stuff. They're Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, there was at one point in time a Harry Devlin mural in that house. The Whitkes were also a presence in Westfield that remained in 1971. In fact, Etta, short for Henrietta, as I mentioned, her nephew John Mills Whitke was still living with his wife in a converted carriage house just 100 yards away from Stately Breeze Knoll on the day in question. So they were still there, just not like in the giant mansion. Even though the land had long since been divided up, a Whitka still lived on a little part of it. And the Devlins stayed in a home just a few doors down while they owned, owned a house. 
the town's history was literally soaked into the walls of Breeze Knoll, and so many lifelong residents had felt a little protective over it. It's like kind of a landmark, or it was. And as Dr. Bill gazed out his window over at Breeze Knoll, he watched a light in the upstairs window shut off. It seemed that the lights had been going off and staying off one by one recently. Previously, the lights in Breeze Knoll were left on all the time, like 24 hours a day, lights burning bright, which wasn't really a cause for alarm since at the time it was commonplace for residents to do this as a theft deterrent. Mm-hmm. So they would like leave the lights on. Yeah. You know? Dark windows, however, were strange. Still a little vexed by the slowly diminishing lights, Dr. Bill Cunnick noticed something else. A strange white car had pulled up in front of the house, idled for a moment, and then parked in the driveway. This car he recognized vaguely, as it had been doing drive-bys of the home for weeks now, and it was not a resident of the neighborhood. The children, who currently lived at Breeze Knoll, were all apparently away visiting a sick family member, so it seemed unlikely to be a random friend coming to call, and then thinking better of it, multiple times. Hmm. This, coupled with the fact that earlier in the day, the Cunnicks had received a phone call from the police asking if they had maybe seen anything strange going on across the street. Oh, that that raises alarms. Uh Uh-huh, the red flag. And the police also asked, "Mm, have you heard anything from the residents of 431, you know, over at Breeze Knoll? Have you seen them or heard anything? And the Cunnicks said, no, actually, we haven't. And come to think of it, we haven't seen hide nor hair of them in about a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which made them grow pretty concerned. But they hadn't made their own calls to the authorities at that point because the family who lived over at Breeze Knoll was not very social and did not like neighbors prying into their business, a fact that kept them at arm's length from most people in the community. Mm. So while the Cunnicks hadn't seen anybody in that house in a while, they were like, well, they don't want to talk to us. So I guess leave them alone. Right, like nobody would know. Like they wouldn't have told neighbors if they no. were really going away no. or anything. And they're like, they wouldn't have friends that were missing them. Right. So who are these weirdos? The current owners of Breeze Knoll, who purchased the home from the Young family in 1965, have proved to be pretty different from its previous residents in a lot of ways. The house seemed to grow colder and a veil of darkness settled over its considerable grounds when they moved in and it didn't lift until Breeze Knoll itself burned to the ground just seven years later. So who were these new owners? Well, let's meet them, shall we? In 1965, a man named John List purchased Breeze Knoll and moved his family of five and elderly mother into its walls. The Lists were strange by Westfield standards, or like any standards, for that matter. But the neighbors were willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. This was a very tight-knit community a place where a longtime resident was quoted as saying it was a pleasure to have neighbors back then. Every single one of them was like a unique treasure. Isn't that sweet? I love that. Then he recalled an idyllic childhood spent in this neighborhood in Westfield with many children who kind of like ran free in hordes through grassy yards, playing neighborhood-wide softball games and looking for fruit trees to pilfer or a pool to duck into when it got hot. I know. Picture smiling, tan children sitting on curbs with sticky popsicles and forsaking shoes altogether for the better part of summer break. It's the dream. Yeah. That's the dream. But not for the lists, apparently. 
who seemingly didn't even know, like, how to relax ever <laughs> at all. Right. Um, even in a life such as this, which made relaxing seem pretty simple. The Lists were austere religious people, our favorite kind. Okay. Yeah. Or at least John List really wanted them all to be. Hell, even their name suggests order and rigidity. We're the Lists. One after the next. <laughs> done. John List, the chilly patriarch of the family, was most famously known by the neighbors for regularly mowing his lawn in a full suit and tie, no matter how hot the weather. That's hilarious. Yeah, just out there, full suit, sweating his face off, mowing the lawn. And this isn't a little lawn, and this isn't a time when I there was, like, imagine. riding mowers. Yeah. Oh, yep. my God. This is hours of a push mower in the beating sun in a suit. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. John embodied get-off-my-lawn energy. Yeah. He was also known for throwing rocks at children who cut through his property. Charming. Perfect. He also threw not rocks at the neighborhood donkey named Eliza Doolittle when she occasionally snapped her tether and wandered over to graze on the suit mode lawn that John was so proud of. Oh my, there was a neighborhood donkey? I fucking love this donkey. Eliza Doolittle? Yeah, so one of the families, I think it might have been the Devlins, actually. They All the families in this neighborhood were big, like seven kids and up. They had huge yeah, families. Yeah, Right. And while it's a wealthy neighborhood, some of them didn't have, like, a lot of extra money considering their big house and there were lots yeah. of kids and stuff. And so one Christmas, <laughs> this family's father was like, well, I don't know that I can buy a lot of presents, but I can buy one donkey. And so he did. That's and she would just be, like, tethered in the lawn, like, che- like eating the grass. And, like, the neighborhood lo- fucking loved her. They're like, there's a nice doodle grazing up there. <laughs> But sometimes Eliza would get feisty and she would break free of her rope and run away. And it was always to like John List's manicured lawn and she'd be just like, I'm going to eat this grass. (laughs) And he would get very mad and throw rocks at her. I know. Eliza Doolittle. You got to be like a stone cold motherfucker to throw rocks at Eliza Doolittle. And like, that's like God's creature, John. (laughs) Yeah, get it together. I think every neighborhood should have a donkey. That is so whimsical. Absolutely. Mm. We should get one. You should be the house against the donkey. I should be the donkey house. You have land for it. I do have land for it. (laughs) Let's talk about that later. Okay. But John List didn't care to make any friends unless they were church officials. And even then, they were kind of on a pretty formal level. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't even fully open the front door if a neighbor came knocking. That was something, like, well-known that he would, like, look out the little window and, like, or, like, just crack open the door and be like, you know, hey, what do you want? And then, like, close the door. He was super antisocial. John was an ex-military man, an accountant, and a Lutheran, and that's all he thought most people needed to know about him. That's all I needed to know. I know, right? He wore standard-issue military, like, birth control-style glasses, so there's, like, square, which are, like, cute now, but then nobody wanted them. And plain, neatly pressed clothing, mostly suits, even at home, even on the weekend, even in the summer. Yeah. Always a suit. John never smiled either. His dour face matched his bland and formal attire. And I don't think he ever relaxed, not one time. He was like if a three-hour Catholic wedding, the kind with a mass, and your great-aunt reading a letter from St. What-the-fuck to the Corinthians were a person. That's him. Okay. You have to sit through it. It's terrible. I know. You just hope there's a good dress to look at. So rough. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Here's a good example. One of the most famous neighbor-driven stories about John List happened right when the Lists moved into town. So Harry Devlin, the artist, and his young, youngest son marched two doors down to the Lists' home with a pie from Geiger's bakery in hand. Now, a pie from Geiger's was no joke. Mention it to any longtime Westfield area resident, and they will insist that Geiger's Cider Mill Restaurant and Bakery had the world's best apple pies. They made everything fresh. They grew the apples. They pressed their own cider. Mm. This was like, you had a good pie. And having a treat of this caliber delivered to your door was a very nice gesture. Absolutely. Anyone would have been grateful for it. Well, anyone except John List. Harry, as I mentioned earlier, had painted a mural in the List home, and his son had spent countless afternoons running around Breeze Knoll with the Youngs, the the former residents, with their children. This was a place that the Devlins had been very comfortable in and familiar with. The Youngs and the Devlins had actually been very good friends, so they'd spent a lot of time in this house. Harry rang the front doorbell and waited for his new neighbor to answer, anticipating a happy encounter and maybe a new friend. Mm Mm-hmm. After a couple rings, John List cracked the door in his suit with his no smile and birth control glasses and peered out. Harry explained that they had come to welcome them into town and introduced himself. He handed John the pie, saying, I have a pie from Geiger's for you. John said, thank you, and reluctantly welcomed him into, like, the first couple feet of the home. So Harry began telling John about the neighborhood. He said, you know, these, this family lives here. This family lived there. They have kids. This guy does that. He's like, telling, giving him the lay of the land, telling him what everything is. But John soon cut him off saying, thank you very much, but we like to keep to ourselves over here. And then showed him out. Oh, that's so rough. Rusty. Yeah. Probably locking the door behind them. Rude. So rude. Your mm. nice neighbor brings you a pie and you're like, get the fuck out. But he kept the pie. Sure did keep the pie. Yeah, you don't give up that pie. No, you don't give up that pie. When I moved here, um, one of my neighbors brought us a pot pie from a local bakery. It was the nicest gesture in the world. That's so cute. I was so grateful and nice. I I wasn't like, oh, sorry, we don't let people in our house never come back. I want to be that person on the street that, like, brings the casserole. (laughs) It's it's good. It's a good person to be. I don't know that I'll ever have that much forethought, but I hope to. Yeah. John's wife, Helen, and his mother, Alma, were quite a bit warmer. The neighbors remember Alma being kind and quiet and just generally grandmothery. She was like really happy to be living with her grandchildren in the golden years of her life. And she liked Westfield and she was nice to everybody. She didn't spend a lot of time out and about though, because she had uh, on the third floor, John had built her an in-law suite. So she had her own apartment up there. And while they all lived under the same roof, Alma essentially lived alone in the attic. With, and there's like 19 rooms. 19 rooms. She lives on the third floor alone in a, in a little apartment they fashioned for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that that was ever an option. Well, she gave him the down payment, too. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but okay. he paid for the house, which was at the time listed for $50,000, which now seems like nothing, but back then was yeah. expensive, with a down payment of $10,000 that his mother gave him on the condition that she could also live with them. And he was like, cool, but also in an apartment upstairs. Yeah. (laughs) So. But even $50,000 back then for that size house was like nothing. I don't know that it was. It was said to be very expensive because everyone was like, $50,000? But that's what I mean. But for any any house like that, it's like insane. I don't know. That's why we have trouble buying homes now because it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. 
His wife, Helen List, is also remembered fondly by the neighbors. They said she was sweet and kind whenever they came to the door. Helen, if it was Helen who answered, would be very nice. Hi, how you doing? I'm Helen. It's nice to meet you. She was kind to the local children. She uh, would welcome people in and have a pleasant conversation. She was warm to her own children, too. Very supportive. She wasn't chilly and weird like John. And she's pretty much what you would expect of a mom, except for the fact that she was ill. Most of the time, Helen was bedbound, lacking the strength to do much. Neighbors remember her answering the door in her nightdress, but never seeming inconvenienced or anything but happy to see them. Honestly, it was kind of curious that she even married a man like John, but neighbors thought it best not to pry. And then there were the children. Patricia was the oldest. She was 10 when they moved to Westfield, followed by nine-year-old John Jr., or John Frederick, and seven-year-old Frederick, because apparently the list men only have two names. You are John Frederick, John, or Frederick. That's all you get. Though the children went to public schools, the way two of the three list children are often described reminds me a lot of kids who were homeschooled in like the 80s or early 90s. Homeschooling now is very different. Mm -hmm. But in the 80s and early 90s, you were pretty insulated and did not know how to act around other kids if you were homeschooled. Yeah, definitely. They were kind of like aliens who just put on their human suit and they were like at a party like, hello, people. Yeah. Should we have some food that humans enjoy? Oh my God. Yeah. Uncomfortable and extremely sheltered is, I guess, another word for it. The boys, Frederick and John Jr., or John Frederick, were awkward in social situations. I mean, you would be, right? They were unaware of modern pop culture references. Like, they just didn't get anything that was going on. So you could be like, hey, this rock music is cool, or I watch this show on TV. And they'd be like, mm-hmm. um, we could talk about World War One or Lutheranism. <laughs> yeah. The end. I know some fun hymns. Would you like me to sing them for you? (laughs) Um, They were also all described as innocent for their age, which is a product of being sheltered, most likely. Yeah. But they were also described as unskilled at making friends, which makes me sad, and painfully shy. Neighborhood kids remember them as the sort of children who might get picked last in gym class. Worst. They were very nice. And mannerly beyond the comprehension of most grade schoolers. John Jr. was an academic, quiet, soft-spoken, and diligent child. A Westfield friend remembers him lovingly as, quote, a big geek. And to put it delicately, not gregarious. Hmm. Yeah. John's friend remembers that they used to play floor hockey in the ballroom. So he would come over and they would, like, you know, hit a ball around in the ballroom. And this was fun. But he also recalls that John's home life was very obviously weird. And he describes it as, like, weirder than mine, which which I love. He was like, it was weird in his house. Definitely weirder than at my house. What was at your house? Right. I would love to know. (laughs) He doesn't go on. I need an explanation. He doesn't describe his house. But the list house is weirder. Um, (laughs) I don't know. He, He does recall, though, that, like, John's father, John Sr., kind of lurked around like a specter. He was very cold and like scary, kind of, Mm. like a scary presence. And he yelled at the children a lot. And like the littlest mess up, like if they didn't say please or they did one little tiny thing and he would be like on their ass screaming at them. John Jr. was clearly a product of his upbringing. So you have this like scary father figure and you get this like quiet, studious, not super fun kid. Right. Doesn't, it's not weird that that's what happened. Frederick, the baby, was sweet and eager, but also cautious and shy. 
He had a little lisp. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, and his sister, Patty, would sometimes make fun of him for it, but in like a good-natured way. And um, and he was always able to kind of laugh at it with her. So, And he really wanted nothing more than to play with the other kids and be normal. They all describe him as like, he really wanted it. Like he really wanted to come hang out with us and be part of it. Both the boys did, but like they just didn't fully get it. Mm-hmm. So it, be, it was kind of difficult. According to one of the older kids, quote, if you had to picture a Boy Scout, that would be Fred. Oh, okay. I know. Uh, the neighborhood kids remember John Jr. and Fred as obviously wanting to be like part of their neighborhood horde and trying really hard whenever they could, but that wasn't as often as one would think because John did not see shoeless, sticky, baseball-playing children as fit companions for his pious little soldiers. Yeah. It's like, oh, you grimy little monsters, and he didn't really want his kids associating with them, which is bananas because they were probably like doctor's children. <laughs> I know. Patricia, however, the list's eldest child and only daughter, was different. Patty, or Pat, as everyone called her, was bright, funny, outgoing, and popular. Patty knew the pop culture. She knew shows and songs. She was described as more worldly than the other children. A friend described her as the embodiment of that old hippie song, the girl with flowers in her hair. Hmm. Yeah, he remembers Patty as a free spirit who would be like, Wearing miniskirts and running through a field with her long hair floating behind her. I bet her dad loved that. Mm-hmm. And Patty smiled a lot. Hmm. She was also kind of rebellious. Okay. Yeah, she had boyfriends. Ooh. What? She smoked cigarettes and cut class with her friends. Oh, my goodness. Wild. And please prepare yourself. She wanted to be an actress. Oh, my God. She has to have a demon inside her. True. And John hated that. He saw acting as a waste of time, but mm-hmm. Patty loved it, and Helen, her mother, su- did support her. She joined the local community theater troupe and spent all her extra time doing plays with her newfound friends. So she had this, like, friend family she founded the theater. She's very close to these people. Not uncommon. Patty was also beautiful and frequently cast in roles that John, her father, found far too adult for her. Mm-hmm. So she played like Blanche Dubois in Streetcar. Oh, no. And also a bikini-clad babe in Lil Abner. So she like <gasps> ran across the stage in a bikini. Oh, my and God. And apparently when she did it, someone in the audience like sat at attention and went, do that again! Which <laughs> <laughs> I thought was funny. Patty had good friends. She had like people. People who knew her, really knew her, and loved her. She wanted more out of life than obedience and devotion to the church, which most of us do. She also knew that she wasn't doing things her father was proud of, but she realized that her life was hers and she wanted to live it. That went over well, of course. No problems at all. But back to 1971. And you know what? I think we could all use a little help getting back into that year. Leslie, do you happen to know anything about 1971? Well. Holly, actually, I do. Oh, my God. You always know. I always, yeah. It's just there in your head. It is. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I I didn't even realize that I knew so much. There it is. Yeah. Enlighten us. Well, gas was only 36 cents a gallon. I'm going to throw up. (laughs) Mariner 9 was the first spacecraft launched into space that orbited the entire planet of Mars. Oh, fun. We entered the digital age with the company Intel inventing the first microprocessor, which is like the brain of the computer, Holly. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Ray Tomlinson invented email. Mm, really? In 1971? Yeah. That's when it started. Would not have thought. The fashion included bell bottoms, belted turtlenecks, 
sport jackets, shirt dresses, corduroy jeans, velour pantsuits, tunic pantsuits, jumper pantsuits, all the pantsuits. Listen, this is a collection of words that don't go together as clothes. I know. (laughs) But there are also things that I'm seeing. Corduroy jeans. Yeah. Belted turtlenecks. What? Yeah. Dobby striped shirts. Sure, a little elf striping it along. Love it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, at first I wanted to write double striped shirts because it is like two, it's the alternating color oh, okay. styles, right? Two-way blouse, which... Again, no sense. Two-way okay. blouse. No, it does make sense. All right, Because you can enjoy the ruffled jabot for a more... Jabot? Is it jabot? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. A little like collary thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the ruffled jabot. For a more sophisticated look. Mm-hmm. And then you can detach it when you were in a more relaxed setting. Fuck yeah, tits out. Let's go. Yeah. Well, no, you would still have a blouse Ugh, on, terrible. but you just had like the ruffle there <laughs> and then you can remove it like a like a clip-on tie. Not as fun as tits but out. A, but a clip-on <laughs> jabot. <Okay. laughs> the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. Thank God. Cigarette advertisement bans on TV and radio in the U.S. took effect. Mm-hmm. China was admitted to the United Nations. And then there was a friendly game of ping pong between Americans and Chinese during the World Championship of Ping Pong, which reopened, uh, is it Sino-American? Sino? I don't know. S-I-N-O. American relations between, or us. So it opened those relationships since the Cold War. Right, right. Thank you for us, Gab. Yep. Then uh, Walt Disney World opened in Orlando, Florida. I want to go back to Disney World so bad. Me too. Patron trip. Yes, patrons. (laughs) Disney World. Actually, I really want to go to Disneyland because I've never been to that one. Okay. But it's not as fun as Disney World. It's not? I don't know. Disney World is like bigger. It's bigger. Okay. Anyway. I guess it's still fun though. I don't know. Californians, tell us how Disneyland is. I just really want to go to California. I'm going. Okay. That's, that's it. Continue. Goodbye. <laughs> right now. See ya. The first Starbucks opened at the Pike Palace Market in Seattle, Washington. Mm. Barry Manilow wrote a new State Farm jingle. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Barry Manilow wrote that? He wrote that. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like four notes. I don't know why I'm so impressed. He wrote so many other songs. I know. But still, it's hanging in there. It's his best song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, State Farm. <laughs> All right. Jerry Springer was elected to Cincinnati City Council in what? 1971. Yep. Oh, no. I know. And then I didn't realize, or I think I might have known this, but then... Six years later, in 1977, he was chosen to serve as Cincinnati's mayor by the city council. So Jerry he was Springer. I know. Went from legit to like not. I mean, he was pretty big for a People while. Fist fought on yeah. the stage. Oh, they threw chairs. They sure did. They got Steve guy. There's a lot going on. I know. Oh, Steve. Mm-hmm. The card game Uno was released. The top movie was Fiddler on the Roof. Movie? Yeah. Oh no. And I know I thought that was weird, right? Yeah, definitely that was weird. that was the movie that made the most money that year. It's like eighteen hours long and very it's depressing so musical. Wild. Yeah, the number one song of the year was "Joy to the World" by Three Dog Night. In stark contrast with the number one movie, there I is know. no joy in Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> well, they needed they needed it after they did. They were like, "Ugh." Joe Frazier defeated Muhammad Ali in a boxing match at Madison Square Garden, ending Ali's thirty-one. 
fight win streak. Oh, yeah. poor thing. I know. All right. That was interesting. Um, you'll like this. Amy Poehler and Snoop Dogg were born this year. Good year. Great year. And then this was a wild pop culture story that happened this year that I found out. Bring it on. On December 10th, 1971, Frank Zappa had a concert with his band, The Mothers of Invention, Ooh. at the Rainbow Theater in London. During their Beatles cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand, Ooh. 24-year-old Trevor Howell darted at the speed of light at Zappa Uh-oh. and pushed him off the stage where Zappa fell 15 feet and landed on concrete on a concrete floor. Ew, that's not good. No. Howell tried to run off, but Zappa's fans grabbed him and held him backstage till the police got there. Meanwhile, Zappa was knocked out. Everyone, oh, so Zappa recounts the event in his, like, biography, saying, The band thought I was dead. My head was over on my shoulder, and my neck was bent like it was broken. I had a gash in my chin, a hole in the back of my head, a broken rib, and a fractured leg. One arm was paralyzed. Oh, my God. So besides those injuries, the fall also crushed his larynx, which affected his vocal range, making him transform into a low and husky style. Mm. And he was in a wheelchair for about a year. Wow, that is wild. And when asked why Howell attacked Zappa, Howell said that it was because his girlfriend said she loved Frank. Oh, shit. What if it was the wrong Frank? I know. I think he knew did too but still like what if it was like frank down the street yeah and he was like i'm gonna go big (laughs) (laughs) going after all the franks going after the biggest frank yeah that'd be nuts i thought that was interesting that was very interesting so that was 1971 that's the year a wild time a total wild time back to westfield oh also um because this uh, this probably is important for our story i don't know but the economy was like terrible this during this year that will for, come into play for later. most Americans. Um, so there was, yeah, a lot of Americans were struggling. Like it is now. I know. Okay, back to Westfield. The white car that had pulled up in front of the list's home on that mild December evening had been looking for Patty. It was her drama coach, a man named Ed Iliano, and his colleague, a fellow drama coach named Barbara Sheridan. Bill Cunnick, the doctor who lives across the street, walked up to the car and Ed and Barbara got out and introduced themselves. Ed explained that Patty was one of his most beloved students. She was talented and passionate and a joy to work with. And out of nowhere, she completely stopped showing up to class. This was highly out of character for Patty. Her father had called and said that Patty and her brothers were going to North Carolina to visit their sick grandmother. And then they never came back. Patty's friends had not seen or heard from her since early November when she left for this alleged visit. Ed thought this was very suspicious, and so he had begun driving by the list home and noticing that one by one, the lights, which had previously been blazing for 24 hours a day, began to shut off. Mm. Concerned and a little scared, Ed Iliano had called the police, who did not seem to think anything was gravely wrong. The lists were weird and entitled to visit a relative to keep themselves safe, and as it turned out, the officer who received Ed's call that day didn't have any backup, so he couldn't go over to the list house. Okay. But Ed knew that something was wrong, and so he kept driving by and ended up calling again. That's when the cops decided to check in with neighbors. Remember I said the doctor across the street got a mm-hmm. phone call? Pretty ominous. Bill Connick explained to Ed that he uh, hadn't seen anyone coming or going from that house in weeks, and that's what he had told the police. The milk delivery had appeared to stop, and the mail had not come either. 
The grounds had been neglected. No cars had been parked in the driveway. No voices heard or visits attempted. Just silence. Bill, Ed, and Sharon were all extremely concerned at this point and agreed that someone had to make their way into that house. Fortunately, when Bill left his house to check on who was in the mysterious white car out front, he had instructed his wife to call the police, and they were already on their way. He probably didn't assume that that car held concerned drama coaches. I mean, right. <laughs> that's probably the last thing you'd expect to find in a shady car you're a little scared of. That's amazing. You're like, it's criminals. And they're like, no, we're actors. Okay. <laughs> Might be just as terrifying. <laughs> they're theater actors. It's a, a, little, it's a lot. I know. It goes a little better than that, but you know. The lists had the right to be eccentric, but at this point, the welfare of three children was at risk, and the police knew that it was kind of time to stop minding their business. At 10 p.m., two Westfield police officers showed up in a cruiser and agreed with Bill and his wife and the drama coaches that they needed to get inside of Breeze Knoll and check on the situation. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. Did anyone fucking knock on the door? Did they? Here's the thing. I don't know. I've read so many sources about this case and listened to hours of NJ.com reporting, um, but nobody mentions actually going up to the door and knocking during the time that the list home sat awkwardly inactive, hmm. which is feels like a real breach in, in procedure. Like, why wouldn't anyone knock? But there is just no reports of it. And also, I should mention that my primary source this week, and I'll put it in the show notes, is um, NJ.com's reporting on this case, which is both a series of articles and a 13-part podcast called Father Wants Us Dead. Mm. And it is incredible. It is so detailed. They interview everyone who lived there. They really do the damn thing. So I encourage you all to go listen to that if you want more information on this case. So anyway, I feel like the drama coaches must have knocked on the door at some point in time. But honestly, John List was a terrifying presence, so I can't be sure. John was known to show up at rehearsals to pick Patty up, all like stern and silent. And when he walked in, the theater um, would just like go cold. Like the other kids in the class were like, oh, we, we would all just like shut up and stand there when he walked in the door because he was fucking terrifying. He'd simply frown and say, Patricia, it's time. And then walk her out. Mm. Yeah. So everybody was pretty wary of him. And I'm not sure that these drama coaches wanted to make him mad. Right. So maybe they didn't go up to the door. And their neighbors wouldn't have gone knocking, as we discussed earlier, as they pretty clearly were not welcome or encouraged to come over without a very good reason. Yeah. So maybe no one did knock on the door. Or, I mean, like, even if they did, they might not have been shocked if he didn't come right. to the door. Right. So also, then, okay, what about church? Yeah. We think. Again, John had told anybody that was important, an important member of the church, that his children were away visiting a sick grandmother. And because he was social with precisely no one, no one thought to make sure they were okay as time passed. So is the thing that the kids are away and he's yeah. not, like he should be home? I, I, I think that's what it is because it's only mentioned in every, in sources as he said, the children went to visit Helen's mother in North Carolina who was sick. And she really was sick, but they clearly were not there. Right. So that would leave Alma in the attic okay. and he and Helen at home. Okay. However, Helen is bedbound and yeah. does not go out in the world. Alma is frequently up in her attic apartment, and John List hates everyone. Yeah. So 
The thing is, even if they all were supposedly home, it wasn't weird not to hear from them or it wouldn't have been because the social connection to anyone in the community was the children, predominantly just Patty. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't really tell you. Maybe nobody really was looking for them. Okay. And so the two officers, who I'm sure did actually knock first, it's the law and all, were satisfied that no one was answering the door. And so they forced their way in with drama coach Ed Iliano at their heels. Immediately, things inside Breeznell were eerie and strange. And I should also add that Ed Iliano is quite the character. After this, he like told anyone who would listen that he discovered the scene by himself. He like wanted to find Patty and stormed into the house and discovered things all on his own, which is not true. The cops came and he followed them. Okay. He also made a movie called The Patty List Story where he portrays her as, like, in love with him and sex-crazed. So... <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. You can't find this movie, really. It's, I mean, and rightfully so, you shouldn't be able to because it's a fucking farce. But, like, yeah, I think he had a weird thing for Patty, and that's why he was looking for her. But that's my connecting dots. Okay. Could be wrong. I mean, I totally got that vibe immediately. Right, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Your adult coach is looking for you at home. Yeah. Okay. She's just so charismatic. I just think she's got so much potential. Yeah. <laughs> she's such a good actress. And she's, like, really hot. Mm, that doesn't mean anything, but she's <laughs> so hot. Yeah, so hot. Right, let's get out of here. Yeah, I know. So, they get in the house, and the first thing they notice is that it's pretty noticeably dark in there. And the lights would not turn on with a switch. So they tried to flip the switch, click, 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 nothing is happening. Um, So they all appeared to have been burnt out. Hmm. So these lights that slowly went off were basically light bulbs giving up. Okay, so nobody was turning them out. They were just burning out. they were just burning out one by one. I don't like that at all. I don't either. Yeah. And so the officers took out their flashlights, which makes everything spookier, walking around with a flashlight. I'm terrified. We're done. The soft... (laughs) Oh, it's going to get worse. The soft sound of organ music, Ew. the kind, yeah, the kind, kind one might hear when entering a church or funeral home, was being piped through the speakers in the house. Holly. Yeah. This just, isn't real life. No, it is real life. Oh, my God. Just church music in oh a dark God. mansion. I hate this. Yeah. Had I stumbled upon this scene, I would have been expecting the Phantom of the Opera to jump out of the shadows. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Like, that's, oh my that, God. that would be my brain. Another immediately noticeable factor upon entering the house was the temperature. Now, I mentioned that it was a mild December day, but that still meant that at 10 o'clock at night, it was around 45 degrees outside, which is heater weather, or at least fireplace weather. When you stepped inside a residence, at the very least, you expected it to be warmer than it was outside. But Breeze Knoll wasn't. It was cold. See your breath cold. Probably suspecting a possible power outage or a blown fuse, One of the officers went to look at the thermostat, but nothing was broken or malfunctioning. It was set to 50 degrees. Oh, my God. Someone had wanted it to be that cold in that house. It was probably Vecna. Probably. Ugh. Ugh. (laughs) And there was something else. The smell. No. Throughout the house, there was a faint, sickly sweet stench of rot. Veteran police officers will tell you that there is no mistaking that smell. It is the smell of death. Something had happened in that house. Cautiously, the officers shone their lights around and moved through the house, noticing that it was tidy 
But keeping it that way wouldn't have been that difficult since for such a large house, there was such an alarming lack of furniture. Hmm. The Lists, it seemed, had been financially unable to fully furnish the enormous home and made do with what they have, leaving some of its many, many rooms cavernous and nearly empty. Listen, I upgraded house sizes significantly last year. I know that it's super hard to suddenly acquire three times the amount of furniture. It's a process, but they weren't even trying. Hmm. Yeah. The empty and cavernous nature of the mansion, however, made the evidence police quickly started noticing a lot more obvious. The hallway floor was smeared with drag marks of blood. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. More blood smears appeared on the walls and furniture. One, they, and then so at this point, they see the blood. It's cold and weird. There's organ music. They decide to split up, which is smart. Don't split up. I know. Don't ever <laughs> split up. But nothing bad happens to them. It's Stay okay. Stay together. So Ed Iliano and one officer go one way, and this other lone guy goes the other way towards the kitchen. So if you walk in the front door of Breeze Knoll, in front of you is a grand staircase, like Tara, like beautiful. And then next to it, I get, I think like straight back is where you would go to like the kitchen pantry area and then there's like a back door it's like a barn door so it's split into two and then to your I believe right I could be wrong this is the basic layout that I get it's hard to find the exact layout of this house is um like a like a living room area like parlor type thing and then a doorway with on either side like um globed gas lights they look like gas lights but they were mm-hmm. plugged in at the time so you can tell they're very old and then it's like a curtained door no nope. Yeah, I know. That, which there. that goes into the ballroom. Okay. So the one officer makes his way towards the kitchen. So he goes straight back. And there he finds paper shopping bags on the floor filled with blood-soaked paper towels and rags. In fact, the rags and paper towels were so saturated in so much blood that it had leaked out of the bottom of the bags onto the floor in streams. A blood-soaked mop lay stiff in a bucket in the pantry. Bullet holes studded the kitchen walls. Two textbooks sat on the kitchen counter next to a boy's soccer bag, and pet fish laid belly up and decomposing in the bottom of a tank. This was all adding up to something extremely grim. And then this officer walking around the kitchen was summoned into the other room by his partner and drama coach Ed. Mm. They had found the family. Most of them. The officer made his way back through the front hallway and through the curtain doorway into the ballroom. The drag marks had led through the doorway, like they they seemingly came from the kitchen, through into the hallway, Mm -hmm. down through the front um, parlor and into the ballroom. Yeah, no, I can picture it, Holly. Just laying it out for all the people. On the floor of the ballroom, laid out on red and blue sleeping bags, were the bodies of Helen, Patricia, John Frederick, and Fred List. Oh, he put them on sleeping bags? To drag them. Oh. oh yeah. So he didn't carry, I mean, like, clearly he couldn't carry them. Alma's yeah. upstairs. He put, because a sleeping bag will, like, yeah. no, you know, go I, on the floor. I know. Makes sense. Ugh. Uh-huh. They had all been shot in the head and carefully placed in this location. But John Jr. was riddled with bullet holes and had a towel over his face. The others, it seemed, had gone quickly, one bullet each to the back of the head. They had all been dead for some time. The blood had dried and stiffened, but decomposition had not been quick because the house had seemingly stayed so cold. Mm. This, the police thought, must have been intentional. Whoever did this didn't want them to rot. NewJersey.com reporters and authors 
uh, host of the podcast, Father Wants Us Dead, described the scene like this, quote, four bodies arranged on the oak floor. They were placed on red and blue sleeping bags, darkened and stiffened with dried blood. The children were side by side, still dressed in their jackets from the cold fall day four weeks earlier. Patty and Fred were on their sides, facing each other. John was on his back, his face covered with a white towel, and his hands in gloves resting on his stomach. The sides of the sleeping bag were wrapped around him as if to keep him warm. Helen's body was perpendicular, about a foot from her children's heads and closest to the door. Her nightgown had gathered up around her hips, and her arms were stretched over her head, which was also covered by a towel. The killer had tried to clean things up, obviously. But the crime and subsequent body relocation seemed to have been a lot bloodier than they may have thought, and the task was harder than it seemed. But now, the $40 million question, where was John List? It seemed obvious to the officers when they could not locate him right away that he was to blame for this. Right. But that suspicion would be cemented in reality when they entered his office. Uh, NJ.com describes what was found on John's desk as, quote, kind of a treasure map. Notes taped to his desk and filing cabinet labeling what was inside and how to access it. One of these notes directed authorities to a locked filing cabinet drawer. Inside was a manila folder holding the letters John List composed in preparation for his departure. One was a note about repaying a $500 loan from his boss. Others were brief apologies to relatives and one was a startling confession written to his pastor. That letter was the one you all heard at the start of the show. Remember, P.S., mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. Mm. The letter was dated November 9th, 1971, over a month from when they were discovering oh these bodies. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is sick. Can you imagine? Like, you just find yeah. you're like, oh, fuck, this happened a month ago. I know. Oh, my gosh. Wow, oh. and the body stayed that good. I know it was yeah. cold, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alma List was found in her attic apartment, dead, just as he said. She had been shot in the face and left in a storeroom located just off her kitchen. God, where, so Yeah, where the, he had clearly shot her. Her legs were awkwardly bent underneath her, and a towel covered her face. Mm, so it's like she just, like, fell that yeah, way, Yeah, she probably. just fell over. I mean, I'll, I'll explain later exactly, like, all the things that happened, but yeah. All the lists had now been accounted for except John. This letter told police not only that he had committed this horrendous crime, but that it didn't happen recently. John had killed his entire family almost a month ago, actually over a month ago, and a month is a pretty big head start when you're running from the law. Mm -hmm. John somehow disappeared without a trace, and he would stay disappeared for 18 long years. So wild. It's crazy. Two days after the discovery of the bodies, police located John List's car at John F. Kennedy International Airport, but there was no evidence that John had boarded a flight or even entered the airport itself. The police failed to find John, but they didn't just sit on their hands for 18 years. This story was front-page news. A nationwide manhunt was launched, and detectives began to investigate exactly who John List was and why he might kill his entire family and run. Now, obviously, we have quite the confession letter, right? And that's great. He sent them all to heaven because they were too sinful and times is hard, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. This seems fishy and reaching at best, but it's also taking a killer for his word, a word that we can in 
immediately tell from the contents of the letter and the initial evidence found is not to be trusted. What do I mean by that? Well, for starters, he didn't shoot them all from behind. Like he said, his mother Alma had been shot in the face. She saw it coming, directly. Also, John Jr. was shot 10 times and bore evidence of a considerable struggle. Yeah, but he said that in the letter. Yeah, but he, he said he harder. didn't suffer at all. No, he, he like, said that he suffered, that the no, rest didn't. Mm-mm. He said, John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. So more gunshots. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Yes, he did. I know, but obviously that's what he wants to believe. No, I know, but that's what I'm saying. Like, we can immediately tell that these are not full truths because we're looking at evidence and reading his words and Mm -hmm. they they don't line up. Because obviously, if you're shot 10 times, and when I say he bore signs of a struggle, he obviously fought. Right, like he probably saw the other ones getting shot. No, he he didn't. This happened one at a time. We'll we'll get to that later, but... But he saw his father coming for him, and he fought oh, him. So he had, okay. like, bruises, and his hands were jacked up and stuff because he tried to fight him off. So, like, I don't know how you could possibly think, oh, clearly he didn't consciously suffer at all, and he didn't know it was me. Yeah, he sure enough did. That doesn't make any sense. So right out of the gate, there are inconsistencies, right? And they only get bigger. Investigation into John and his family showed a bit of a different picture than neighbors had painted. John was more than churchy. He was troubled and his marriage was troubled, and his finances were troubled. And uh, I'm going to hit you with a quick biography just to get us all up to date. Okay, so John Amel List. It's spelled Emil, but it's pronounced Amel. I don't like it either, but no one consulted me, so we'll move on. Anywho, John was born on September 17, 1925, in Bay City, Michigan, to German-American parents, John Frederick List I. So I guess his son, John Frederick, was John III and Alma Barbara Florence List. John was an only child, and his parents raised him to be an incredibly devout Lutheran, swearing off everything fun like dancing and socializing and dating for fear of the sinful nature of such things. Yeah, well, we found out that, like, you know, dancing leads to... Slow dancing. Slow dancing leads to Nothing good. Nothing good comes from it. It's immediate fucking. Yep. Yeah. So, um, he's right. (laughs) Shut it down. Shut it down. (laughs) Shut it down. Children are not ready for it. They are not. Mm -mm. John was also reported to be a real mama's boy, and Alma coddled and protected him for a great portion of his life, preferring to keep her only son close and out of the grips of other heathen children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously. As a teen, John taught Sunday school, just like his father had, and went to Bay City Central High School. John's father, John Frederick I, as far as I know, the first there may have been more, He had passed the year after John graduated, which happened to be in 1944 for anyone keeping track at home. But before graduation, John enlisted in the United States Army, leaving immediately after he finished school. In the Army, John served as a laboratory technician during World War II before being discharged in 1946. That was like his tour ended and that was it. He wasn't, nothing bad happened. After he left the military, John enrolled at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant through the ROTC after college, which, or during college, I think, actually, Mm -hmm. which for those of us who don't know, is the Reserved Officers Training Corps, a college program offered at more than 1,700 colleges and universities across the United States that prepares young adults to become officers in the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. In November of 1950, 
as the Korean War escalated, John List was recalled to active military service. And while serving um, part of his term at Fort Eustace in Virginia, he met a beautiful young brunette named Helen Morris Taylor at a local dance. Oh, no. Sinful, sinful, attending a dance. Mm. Although he is an adult at this point, so maybe, like, that's okay. He has to find a wife at some point somehow. Right. They have to make, Chris, like, good Lutheran babies and right. kill this them. This is a safe dance. Yeah. It's a good dance. It's fine. Helen was the widow of an infantry officer who had been killed in action in Korea. Helen had loved her first husband, Marvin Taylor, deeply. And he's like a dish. I don't blame her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The pair had one daughter, a little girl named Brenda, and John and Helen began dating, um, like, right after they met at this dance. So they were, like, immediately taken with one another. And I guess he was totally cool with her having Brenda, who was, I think, uh, like, seven at the time that he met her. So she wasn't a baby. She was, like, a fully formed child. John and Helen did, like, fall for him? Or we don't know. Because my guess is that... Okay, so, because my guess already is that... She's a widow with a child, and she's just going to take what she can get. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. John and Helen began dating, and just a month into their relationship, Helen told him that she had fallen pregnant, which means John hadn't exactly saved himself for marriage. No. Had he? bad. Simple, simple. No wonder he's so strict with the children. I know. Everybody be fucking. Yeah. Knowing it was what he needed to do, John quickly proposed marriage and Helen accepted. Shortly after the proposal, though, Helen informed John that she was not actually pregnant. Oh. Sorry. My mistake. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows what happened to this alleged pregnancy or if it had even been real. Many people suspect, as you do, Leslie, that a widow with a child, Helen, had been looking to secure a husband. And nothing does that faster than a pregnancy. Oh, my God. What if? They didn't have sex, and he just assumed, like, ah, oh, shit, this is the same. That would be wild, but they did have sex. They did? Okay. Yeah. Bad sex. And not a lot. It's, that's been confirmed? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. he confirmed it. But I guess we'll never really know at this point whether the pregnancy was real or not. But it is worth noting, because for all the time they spent as man and wife, John and Helen did not appear to be very passionately in love. Mm. Nevertheless, the pair married on December 1st, 1951 in Baltimore, Maryland, and moved with Helen's daughter, Brenda, to Northern California. The Army reassigned John to the Finance Corps at this point because they were like, oh, yeah, you have like a bunch of degrees in accounting. You should be doing numbers. And he was like, yeah, I should be doing numbers. Then after his completion of his second tour in 1952, John List found work at an accounting firm in Detroit and then as an audit supervisor at a paper company in Kalamazoo, which is also in Michigan and really fun to say. Yes. So um, his three children were also born there. By 1959, John had risen to general supervisor of this company's accounting department, but things at home were not so rosy. Helen had become argumentative and depressed. She would often compare John to her dead husband, Marvin, and not favorably. John did not provide for her in the ways she wanted. Everything was like shabby and not as nice in her opinion. John didn't really seem to enjoy having sex with her either. He just kind of did it because he was supposed to. And Marvin was apparently great at it. So she liked to point that out a lot of times. And to cope with this increasingly frosty and unsatisfying existence, Helen had begun to drink a lot to the point where she was like a lifetime movie hiding bottles around the house and drinking to excess at parties. 
Helen was also sick, in addition to the alcoholism, that is. Her health had seemed to slowly decline as time marched forward, but doctors couldn't pin down exactly what was wrong with her. They could only really put band-aids on the issues. They gave her medication to curb the pain and distress and sent her on her way. So now we have booze and pills. In 1960, Brenda, Helen's daughter, now 16, revealed that she herself had gotten pregnant. Everybody be fucking, what did I say? And she was then sent to live in a home for unwed mothers. Rough. Bye. Mm -hmm. And John, who had legally adopted Brenda as soon as he married Helen, was actually the only family member who visited her. Helen's daughter, Brenda, is like one of the only people that fondly remembers John List. She was like, he's the only dad I knew. He came and saw me when they locked me away in this home for unwed mothers. She's like the only, and it's weird because he's, she's not his like biological child, all of whom would never have said nice things about him. But she, right. you know, had, had a different experience. That's I don't know. so strange. Yeah. John and the remainder of his family then moved to Rochester, New York, so that he could take a job with Xerox. There, he eventually became director of accounting services. And in 1965, John then parlayed that into a position as vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. Upon accepting this job offer, he bought a sprawling mansion we now know as Breeze Knoll, a home well beyond the means of the family. Like, everyone was like, oh. You're doing okay, but, like, that's intense. You bought a mansion on a middle-class house salary. Right. But John, who did care very much about appearances, didn't seem to be bothered by this. John was also very much into projecting this wealth. He wanted everyone to think that he was very successful, very pious, very wealthy, and that his family was the same. And he, like, did everything in his power to project this image, even though he just looked like a fucking douchebag, but whatever. Mm -hmm. That just should be noted. He borrowed $10,000, as I mentioned, from his mother Alma as a down payment and an arrangement to have her also move in with them. He then mortgaged the remaining $40,000 and moved his family and mother in to 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield. But for all of his supposed successes, a few years after moving to Westfield, John, it seemed, couldn't keep a job. His financial difficulties reached critical mass in 1971 when he was laid off from the Jersey City Bank he had moved to New Jersey to work for. But he didn't tell his family ever. Hmm. In fact, John went to great lengths to hide this from everyone. Neighbors, family, wife, nobody knew. Every morning he would wake up, have his breakfast and coffee, get dressed in his suit and hat, kiss his family goodbye, and leave to go to work. And he would drive to the train station and sit in the train station for eight hours, reading the newspaper and looking for work, and drive home and say he was at work all day. That's so rough. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've heard stories like that before. Yeah, me too. It's so sad. Can't feel bad for this guy, though. To supplement what was happening in his home as a recourse for not having any income, John started siphoning money from his mother's bank account to pay the bills. But Breeze Knoll was in jeopardy. This wasn't enough. Like, what What did his mother have, you know? Right. She'd already given him $10,000. John started encouraging the children to maybe get a part-time job, which he said will teach them responsibility, but in reality, somebody needed to pay the bills, and it surely wasn't him. I mean, isn't that why you have children? I mean, like, for some it was, yes. All the while, Helen just seemed to get sicker and sicker, and by this time she was bedbound and nearly always agitated with John. It was maddening to watch her drink herself to death and not know what else was slowly killing her in the meantime. It seemed to be, like, quite the puzzle. 
But as it turns out, Helen did know what was killing her. She just didn't want to tell anyone. Hmm. Finally, in 1969, when things had begun to get dire for Helen, she confessed to her doctors and to John subsequently that she had contracted syphilis years ago from her first husband, Marvin. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. Since then, she was so humiliated by this diagnosis that she left it completely untreated. Wow. Which is wild because then they knew how to treat it. This wasn't 1941. And then that's something she can give John. Well, she didn't, and I'll explain momentarily. If you know anything about syphilis, though, you know that this really doesn't go well for anyone. You can't ignore syphilis. It doesn't go away. The fact that she still had her nose and all of her skin at the time of her death is actually pretty amazing. And uh, Helen had something that reached a point called tertiary syphilis, which meant that its contagion had passed. Now, syphilis isn't contagious forever. It's only contagious, kind of like COVID, in the beginning. And then you just kind of have it and you don't risk passing it on. So this would mean that John didn't get it and neither did her children. Okay. And as I mentioned, she still had a nose, didn't affect her skin, but it did, however, affect her eyes and brain, among other organs. And if you look at family photos of the lists, you can see that Helen has one bulging eye that is looking at something else entirely. Mm. Now, this is a telltale sign of ocular syphilis, but one can hardly tell that if one has no idea what ocular syphilis is or that they need to be looking for it. Right. The disease had also most likely affected her personality through the extensive brain damage it had caused because we've talked about syphilis before. It eats your brain. Yeah. So that could that could explain why she was suddenly an alcoholic and why she was nasty when she wasn't nasty before. All of these things kind of trace back to this tertiary syphilis. Okay, so, but how on earth did John not know, considering that at the time in, you know, when they got married, In order to get a marriage license, most states required a blood test that included STD screening. Oh. Simple. Maryland didn't, which is why she was desperate to get married there. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. It was like one of the few states that didn't make you test for syphilis before you got married. And which is why she was probably like, I'm pregnant. We have to get married today. You know, like, because they got married there. And then she didn't have to reveal that. Now, to add insult to injury, John's eldest daughter, Patty, and his only daughter, by the way, had not really turned out the way he wanted. As I mentioned before, Patty was a smoking, partying, rebellious, popular girl. She was acting in plays. She was playing adult roles and wasting her time on a worthless profession, according to John. And she didn't really care that he didn't approve. She just kept doing her life. She just kept living. Yeah, go girl. Patty also had boyfriends, the most serious of which was four years her senior. So she was 16 and he was 20. Oh, boy. Yeah. He's a sweet local boy who still cries when he talks about Patty to this day. Do I think a 20-year-old has any business dating a 16-year-old? No, I do not. But this didn't seem to be a creepy pairing at the time. Chris was pretty innocently in love with her, according to how he speaks. And in the 70s, I guess this wasn't quite as abnormal. I mean, maybe it was weird. We'll never know. But it didn't seem to be. Right. Hmm. Patty's on-again, off-again boyfriend, this guy named Chris Day, revealed a heartbreaking tale to NewJersey.com where he's talked about serving as a pallbearer for Patty. 
He spoke about entering the church for her funeral and not knowing which casket was hers. So he was just like standing in the entrance to the church like, I don't even know which one is Patty. That's so sad. I know. He also, um, you know, as a pallbearer, helped carry her out. And the whole time he was just racked with not only grief, but also guilt. Because the last time he saw her, he had unintentionally hurt her feelings. Chris had picked her up from an overnight stay with friends at a local college town. And when he went to get her, he brought a female friend of his with him for the ride. And Patty was visibly hurt by this. Mm-hmm. And the two never saw each other again. And he kept, he says in the interview a lot of times, like, oh, there would be other days. There are other times. I'll make it up to her. I'll figure it out. And then he just never saw her again. That's so sad. Yeah, it's super sad. And there was one last thing about Patty. She identified as a practicing witch. Yes, girl. Yes. Patty, it seemed, had entered her teen girl witchy phase. We all have one. She met with other witchy teens and read occult books and played with a Ouija board and chanted spells and hokey rituals into the ether, probably wore silver jewelry and did the whole thing. And in a brutally religious home, this is not going to be good for Patty. It would also link Patty to a girl named Jeanette De Palma, who we will talk about next week. Mm. One of Patty's occult books was found in Jeanette's home after her still unexplained 1972 murder in the North Jersey woods. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So John List had a lot on his plate in 1971. And so he decided that instead of dealing with it all, he would just kill his entire family and run away. Yeah, that is definitely one option. Right, makes perfect sense. And he Mm -hmm. he planned this. Like, there is evidence that John started planning this event as early as mid-October of that year. He had applied for a gun permit, but then realized he didn't need it because he still had his, like, old trusty army-issued gun that he could just use. Convenient. And he did, yeah. And he had done weird things with his family. Like, asked them, like, um, if you suddenly died... What would you want to be done with your body? Like, would you want to be buried? Would you want to be cremated? What would you want to do? Like, hypothetically. Oh, my God. I hope my dad never asks me this. Yeah, run for your fucking life (laughs) if he does. But, like, if you recall back to the letter, he mentions that. He says, they all said they wanted this. Well, he knew Mm because he asked them. Patty had started to say to some of her friends, I think something bad is going to happen to me. I don't know what, but I just... I think something bad. Mm -hmm. And she did use the phrase, like the podcast says, father wants us dead. So she kind of seemed to know what was coming. Well, she would. She's a witch. Exactly. And maybe that's... She could feel these energies. And one could argue maybe that's what she was trying to seek out in the world because she knew something bad was coming and anything that looked like Mm -hmm. it could help might be a viable thing for her. Yeah. We don't know. We can't ask her. So where on earth did John go, right? We, yeah. we know everything that happened, and he's just gone. Well, police thought they might never find out. The searches were exhaustive, but the clues were non-existent, and what they could find out about John led them absolutely nowhere. And the theories began to get a little wild. Yeah. In 1972, John List was a proposed suspect in the D.B. Cooper air piracy case, which was huge! And it occurs to me that some of our listeners might not know exactly what this is. So, Leslie, can you maybe, like, tell them a little bit about this? Because I think it's important to know because it really shows how nuts this got that he was a suspect in this case. Right. Okay. So, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, 
a man using the alias Dan Cooper bought a one-way ticket for a flight leaving the same day from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington, and Cooper paid cash for his ticket. The plane boarded, and Cooper found his seat in row 18, ordered a bourbon and soda, and settled in for the short 45-minute flight uh, with the other 35 passengers. As the plane was ascending above the clouds, Cooper handed flight attendant Florence Schaefer a note. Florence reluctantly shoved the note into her uniform pocket, assuming that it was the man's number. She was, like, always getting these. She was like, ugh. She was probably, like, a very cute flight attendant. Yeah. Got it. But then Cooper spoke and said, ma'am, you're going to want to read that note. I have a bomb. (gasps) So Florence was like, oh, shit. So she read the note, which asked her to sit next to him. She did just that. And once seated, she took in his appearance. He was an average-looking white guy in his mid-40s, wearing a dark suit and dark-colored raincoat. Florence then asked to see the bomb, which I thought was, like, badass. I want to see it. You got a bomb? Show me the fucking bomb. Show it to me. Love you, Flo. (laughs) And Cooper opened his briefcase just enough for Florence to see several red cylinders, some red wires, and a battery pack. So it definitely looked like a bomb. Oh, no. I think Florence was only 22 at the time as well. Oh, my God. She mm-hmm. had youth invincibility. Yeah. I I believe that she has been, I think she had been in a stewardess at the time. Yeah. For several years, probably out of high school. Right. Okay. So that she tracks. was, yeah, she was the one that was more um, seasoned. And then there was another uh, attendant that she was with who was Tina, who is younger. Tina, she was like Tina, newer Tina. at this. So he then told her his demands, which he wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency. Okay. Yeah, because they just had that in their pocket. Yep. Mm-hmm. And four parachutes, two primary and two reserves. Who he bringing with him? <laughs> okay. He just, you know, wanted extra sh- shoots. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Give me all the shoots. Yeah. Florence went to the cockpit with Cooper's demands, and the pilots alerted Seattle Airport, who alerted local and federal authorities of the hijacking. Yeah. So at this point in history, there had been an uptick in hijacking. So remember I said, like, the economy was really yeah. bad at this point. So there had Still been— Still it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and over 100 hijackings had happened between 1969 and 1971. Oh, that's too point. many. That's a lot. a lot. Yeah. So— they, like, knew the drill. They were like, they were just another, like another one of these. One. Yeah. Okay. People were like, okay, we know what to do. When Florence came back to let Cooper know everything was on point for now, she noticed that he was now wearing dark sunglasses. So oh, sure. when you see his, because um, they have a sketch mm-hmm. of of him, uh, like their wanted poster. Mm-hmm. So you'll see one without glasses and one with glasses okay. on. And he's always, like, wearing a suit, which is something that John Liss yeah, was for always sure. wore. Always wore a suit. Wasn't but also, it's guy. not that super weird because at that time people were like dressed up to go on a plane. Yeah. No. Once the plane landed, it took about two hours for authorities to gather the money, parachutes, and emergency personnel to the scene. Once Cooper confirmed that they had his demands, he released the passengers and Florence. So he was just like, "You did your Thanks, job. Flo. You can Good go." Job, babe. <laughs> And he told the rest of the crew to stay, including another flight attendant who was Tina. Oh, Tina, Muck- Tina, I think Tina. it's Mucklow is how you say her last name. She was one that was younger and she had been like, I think he liked talking to her. She was very calming. Okay. So she was the one that was the go-between 
And her job was really just to keep him calm and not want to blow up the plane. In my mind, she has like the Tina Belcher voice. (laughs) She's really, Uh, I think she had like blonde hair. You'll see pictures of her coming off the the plane with other people when she was very pretty, like young and pretty. Poor Tina. So Cooper demanded that they refuel the plane and take him to Mexico City. Yeah, me too. To which they agreed and were off once more. Okay, bye. So once in the air, Cooper worked out his next plan of escape. He strapped the money to him. So he had he now had all this money and had to figure out how to, like, get it off the plane. He, like, yep. didn't think this far ahead. He didn't bring a backpack or anything. Just oh, like, boy. I guess I and I guess he was like, well, the bomb is in the suitcase, so I can't. I guess I hold it. <laughs> I guess I hold it. So he used a piece of one of the pair. He had four parachutes. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'll just use some of this fabric from well, here. Well, I did ask for four. Yeah. So sure. he used the fabric from one of those and like made, like tied it around himself. In the good job. Yeah. He then told Tina to join the rest of the crew up front behind the curtain. Um, and job, after, Tina. yeah. Thank you, Tina. Mm-hmm. And after some time, around 8.15 p.m., they felt the pressure change in the plane, which meant Cooper unlatched the aft stairs and jumped. So one of the reasons, like, this was a smaller plane. Did he even know how to use a parachute? Well, we don't we don't know anything about it. Oh, no. So so one of the things that they have said is the they believe he specifically chose this plane. Okay. Because um, the kind of plane it was. It allowed to fly with those stairs like down. And so originally he had asked them to take off with the stairs down and the and the um, captain was like, we we just we can't do that. Like, it's not actually safe. We can't do it. Yeah. And even though he was just like, no, I know that this plane can do that and it would be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But he just didn't like fight them on it. He was like, whatever, just get me up there. We'll like unlatch it when we're in the air. So then when they were in the air. Um, again, it was something because like in other planes, if you did that, it would be like a whole big yeah, issue. Yeah. But in this plane, it'd be fine to detach it and then they could bring the stairs back up if they needed to. Weird. So That's he weird did thing. learn, like I think Tina showed him how to like Tina. unlatch <laughs> the the stairs. And um, and so then once he was just like, all right, I'm good. You guys go. He just like with his like sunglasses on and his backpack and parachute oh and money strapped, strapped he was to just his like, chest. Yeah. Peace out, people. Bye. And he jumped out. Now, the weird thing is, is that there were fighter jets, like like jets were flying behind them. Okay. And they were waiting to see because they were they were instructed to watch the plane um and make sure that if anything, like if a struggle were to happen on the plane and the plane was going to go into like a populated area, they were like supposed to shoot it down. Oh, right? God. I know. So terrible. But they were like also waiting to see what was going to happen. And this guy jumps out of the plane and they didn't see because it was dark. So it was like nighttime at this point. Oh, so God. they didn't even see the stairs deploy and they didn't see him jump out. Oh, my God. So, yeah, they followed good at they followed them all the way to Reno where the plane where the plane landed and they were like we didn't even see him jump. So we don't even know when it happened. But oh based on the pressure change, they were able to figure out like around 8:15 this is where we were. So when they landed in Reno, Nevada, the authorities did a sweep of the plane collecting fingerprints and anything else they could see. The bomb was not present, but they did find Cooper's cigarette buds. He was like chain smoking the whole time. Two Why strands. They still have those. They they do. They DNA they do. test them. Um, they have. Oh my god! Yeah. So two strands of brown hair that can that was confirmed to be of a Caucasian. Okay. Male. 
his clip-on tie and a tie clip and two of the four parachutes, one of which was cut up from when he had tried to make that bag for the family. Based on the time of Cooper's jump from the plane, experts believe Cooper would have landed just north of Vancouver, Washington. This area was a dense mountainous forest of the Cascade Range, and the trees were hundreds of feet high. So if someone were to land here, even an experienced parachuter would have had trouble. Oh, shit. The parachutes he had were not ones that you could steer with either. So it just was like... Bombs away, man. Okay. When he did land... Um, if he survived, he would have had miles of snowy terrain to hike through as well. And remember, he was only wearing a suit and raincoat. Oh, no. So He over, did not think this through. Or maybe he did. Maybe, maybe he had, like, things know. down there. I don't know. We don't know. He could still be alive. We don't, we don't know. know. Yeah. So over 800 people were considered suspects, but even the strongest leads proved to be dead ends. And to this day, the crime remains the only unsolved air hijacking case. Fuck. Yeah. And then in the summer of 1980, a eight-year-old boy was building a campfire in a riverbed near Vancouver, Washington, and found three rotting packages full of $20 bills, equaling $5,800 in all, that matched the ransom money in the, on the, or the serial numbers. Yeah, of the that money. I did know. Yeah. So, unfortunately, this led them nowhere closer to finding the real Dan Cooper, though it did suggest that the area in which Cooper landed may have been further out from their original search locations, which they did search a lot, like a vast majority, but this was even further out. Jesus. Um, And so, on the plane ticket, the guy that bought it, he wrote the name out Dan Cooper. Okay. But the reason why it's D.B. Cooper is very simple. It was like right when this news story got out, a journalist was like wanted to be one of the first ones. Okay. And he was trying to get as much information as he possibly could as fast as he can. And he just like misunderstood that part and oh. just wrote D.B. Cooper. And then all the other news outlets just took it and So that's ran. not even the name. It never was. It never was. That's it's interesting. Dan Cooper. Huh. <laughs> and they oh. have the plane ticket so you could like see it. they just went with it. They're like they just wrong, with but it. forever yeah. wrong now. Okay. So they do have um, some of the like his artifacts in storage still mm-hmm. and they will like, like DNA test it and so far nobody is like matched and they don't no. match with the fingerprints John List was one of them yeah. they like checked fingerprints he, he and wasn't. he, he didn't, didn't do this. yeah wow and they have a few people that they do there's like one person that they think is like a strong contender but again like they're just they couldn't connect it that is so crazy they just Mm -hmm. never found this guy yeah they do suspect that he's probably dead yeah well but still i mean but although had he died in the fall wouldn't they have found a body i mean maybe not i mean because he could he could be stuck up in those hundred foot trees yes but i feel like that's something at this point we would have found with like a drone or something yeah but he could have like and then skeletal remains would be somewhere and they could have been buried I at guess, this point. Yeah, it's just it's so weird. There's just nothing, you yeah. know. Okay, so this was a this case was a huge deal, though. People like mm-hmm. were very curious about it. Was it was nationwide. And like you said, yeah. there were so many suspects. They were kind of mm-hmm. like, anybody could be this guy. Yeah. So it's nuts that they were like, oh, let me just cast my net and see. Maybe it's this guy. However, it's not not as crazy as you might think, even mm-hmm. though it's big, because John List was considered a suspect in the now we know Dan Cooper case. Because the timing of his disappearance just so happened to be two weeks prior 
to the airline hijacking. John also had multiple matches to the description of the hijacker. So like, you know, a middle-aged white guy, you said he glasses, that kind of thing. Like he could have wore a suit a lot, Mm -hmm. nondescript. And this guy was pretty nondescript looking. I just looked at the illustrations. It could have been the same guy. And they also had the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. So they said, you know, John List could hijack a fucking plane. What is what more could happen to him? Like, right. he has nothing to lose. So this seemed as, as good of a suspect as any at that point. But John was later cleared of this, like, crazy wild rumor. But what if he had done it, man? That'd be crazy, I wouldn't know. it? Yeah. He did need the money. In the end, it would be an episode of America's Most Wanted, a creepy sculpture from a Philadelphia artist, a granny who loved grocery store tabloids, and a call from a concerned neighbor who brought John List down. Ooh, tell me more. John List's case had been recommended to America's Most Wanted numerous times since the show began. But America's Most Wanted, when it first debuted, tend to cover recent crimes. They covered things that just happened and they were trying to actively catch this the person in question. And usually, they went for people who hadn't, like, completely confessed to everything. Mm. And the case didn't get much traction there at America's Most Wanted. But in 1989, still in their first year, America's Most Wanted realized that there was a lot of interest in older cold cases. People wanted to see these seemingly unsolvable cases be solved. And John Walsh was good at that and took notice of John List's case. In May of 1989, the episode aired, and the guys at America's Most Wanted really did some clever detective work. They had a Philadelphia artist named Frank Bender create an age-progressed, eerily lifelike clay bust of John. So this is, yeah, this isn't a photograph. This isn't a drawing. It's a 3D bust. Oh, I don't want to see it. put pictures in the photo suite (laughs) for everybody else. You don't have to look. (laughs) But this was... To show everybody, like, a 360 view of what he would look like. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, down to every last weird little detail. Like, John had had a mastoidectomy, which is when you have, like, a particularly violent ear infection in your middle ear and you Mm -hmm. have to have surgery. So he had a scar behind one of his ears, and that was on the bust. He had also had progressed, like, his hairline back to where it would have receded um, and put glasses similar to the ones that he wore on it. And let me tell you something, Frank. Bender fucking hit it out of the park. This looks exactly the way John looked when they apprehended him. Like he got, and it had been 18 years. And and the uh, Frank Bender, the the artist who did this, like researched the hell. Oh, you're looking at it, aren't you? Leslie's horrified. She said she didn't want to look at it and then showed it to herself. Um, yeah, it's I terrible. Sh- but Frank Bender had done so much work. He had gone and like, done medical records and researched how, like, the certain things would age, how certain wrinkles would form, how, like, he just really did he the did fucking a, work. He did a good job. It's crazy, right? So, this bust was showed extensively on his episode of America's Most Wanted, right? Um, and subsequently, it was also posted in tabloid pictures because the list case got a little renewed entrance interest after it had been on TV, as we expected. So on June 1st, which is less than two weeks after the broadcast of his episode, John List was arrested at work in Colorado. Wow. Mm -hmm. After a neighbor saw the photo of his bust in a grocery store tabloid while waiting in line. 
See, it's not all trash. Mm-mm. I mean, <laughs> fucking go find bad boy. This neighbor came home and told her husband that she strongly suspected their neighbor, a quiet man named Bob Clark, was the fugitive from New Jersey who had killed his whole family. Her husband, a trusting man, made the call, and after not believing it for a few minutes, the police pulled at this thread and were able to unfurl John's whereabouts and then went into action. As it turned out, after he had killed his entire family, John had traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then on to Colorado. He had settled in Denver in early 1972 and took an accounting job under the name Robert Clark, which was the name of a man he went to college with. That guy didn't love this, but he didn't get asked either. John had changed his social security number more than once before leaving New Jersey, which seems like it should have been hard, but as it turns out, it wasn't. Mm-mm. He merely told the office he had lost his card and needed a new one, and that shit worked. Yeah. They were like, here you go. Done. Mm-hmm. From 1979 to 1986, John, now living as Bob, was the controller at a paper box manufacturer outside of Denver. He joined a local Lutheran church, ran a carpool for a local shut-in member, and at one religious gathering, he met an Army XPX clerk named Dolores Miller, and the pair fell in love and were married in 1985. Oh, that's so rough. Yeah, Dolores is under the radar now. She does not like to talk to people. In February of 1988, the couple moved to a house in the Brander Mill neighborhood of Midlothian, Virginia, where John resumed work as an accountant at a small accounting firm. Uh, the firm was called Madria, Joyner, Kirkham, and Woody. And this is where he would eventually be apprehended by the police. John continued after his arrest to stand by his alias for several months. So he's like, no, 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 I'm Bob Clark. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Not gonna work. Then. I never hurt nobody. <laughs> Uh, but even though that's an insane thing to do at that point, what what about any of this is sane? So he might as well right. just like lean in. He did this even after he was extradited to Union County, New Jersey, but eventually his pesky fingerprints gave him away. Mm. On April 12, 1990, John List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. At a sentencing hearing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions, stating, quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understandings, and, of course, prayer. After his arrest, a court-appointed psychologist had diagnosed John with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which is different from garden-variety OCD. You see, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder is marked by an, an excessive obsession with rules, lists, schedules, and order a need for perfectionism that interferes with efficiency and the ability to complete tasks. So you just get focused on one fucking thing, nothing else matters, it all falls away. And it also is categorized by a devotion to productivity that can hinder interpersonal relationships and leisure time, hence the fact that he didn't have any friends or want to do anything fun or relaxed ever. It's also categorized by rigidity and zealousness on matters of morality and ethics, which check, 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 and an inability to delegate responsibilities or work to others, restricted functioning in interpersonal relationships, restricted expressions of emotion and affect, and a need for control over one's environment and self. So yeah, he has that. All the boxes are checked. There are people initially who suspected John Liss had schizophrenia. No, that is not what happened. He heard no voices. Nothing was telling him. Mm-hmm. They thought, well, he's a religious zealot that killed his family, and people always think that means schizophrenia. It did right. not. 
This psychologist who diagnosed him with this, pretty accurately, I will say, argued that once the thought of murdering his family entered his mind, he was like, there's a lot of problems. I could just kill my family. He fixated on that one thing and was powerless to not carry it out. So his obsessive brain was like, well, you have no choice. You have to kill your family. That's it. And it just blocked out all logic and reason and everything else until he did it. Which, okay, but also there are millions of people with this disorder that do not kill their whole family. Right. I mean, you still know that it's illegal. And and someone that morally obligated should know that it's wrong in general. Right. But he made those excuses. He was Mm -hmm. able to blame morality and ethics and stuff that he created in his mind and and excuse it away. But the judge was unpersuaded, probably because a prison guard happened to hear John confess to his second wife, Dolores, that uh, money played an enormous part in why he committed this crime. And he told her that she should sell her story to the tabloids, make as much money she could, and forget all about everything. Wow. Yeah. But I guess that's neither here nor there. The judge said, quote, John Amo List is without remorse and without honor at the sentencing hearing. Quote, after 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. He imposed a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, the maximum permissible penalty at the time. John, of course, re-angled right away and appealed, saying, um, no, actually, I have PTSD from my time in the army, which is why I had to kill everybody. But nobody bought that either. Eventually, John tepidly apologized, saying, quote, I wish I had never done what I did to Connie Chung in an interview in 2002. He said, quote, I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. When asked why he had not taken his own life, he said he believed that suicide would have prevented him from going to heaven, where he hoped to be reunited with his family. Gross. Yep. So what exactly did he do and how did he do it? Well, I'll let NewJersey.com take us out since they did all the work in this matter. John did also later write a memoir, but I don't recommend reading a word of it as a lot of it is self-righteous bullshit, obviously. Because that would be so rough to read. Uh, You can if you want. I don't want to. Um, This account of what happened, the real account for sure, was pieced together by forensic investigators and police and whatnot. I mean, there was a ton of evidence. It's not hard to figure it out. So, NewJersey.com says, quote, Breakfast was finished, the milk delivery accepted, and the three kids sent off to school when John List retrieved two old handguns from the garage. Remember, army guns. He took a deep breath and walked into the kitchen of his spacious Westfield home sometime after 9 in the morning, so he started at 9 a.m., on the morning of November 9th, 1971. Then he raised the stair pistol and shot his wife of nearly 20 years near her left ear. So it's morning, boom, shot his wife at the breakfast table, I believe. A single nine millimeter bullet to the brain sent Helen List's syphilitic body sliding off her chair to the tile floor. One done. He next made his way to the stairs of the house, a 19 room mansion, so fancy it even had its own name. As I mentioned, we know we mean business when a house has a name. So he climbs the stairs to the third floor where his 84 year old mother, Alma, lived in the apartment he had converted for her. Alma had just put a slice of bread in the toaster when she greeted her son with a kiss. She asked about a loud noise she had just heard, and John said he had no idea what it was. And then he shot her in the face. One bullet near her left eye. Mm -hmm. Alma's body was too heavy for John to move, so Liz left her on her back. Her knees bent awkwardly beneath her, blood seeping in every direction. 
Back downstairs, he dragged Helen's body into Breeze Knoll's ballroom, a room rumored to be complete with a skylight made by the Tiffany family and worth $100,000. So this is a rumor that people were like, oh, well, he was right under something that would have solved all of his financial problems. Because had he sold this piece of Tiffany glass or three pieces, I think it's paneled, he could have gotten more than what he needed. And then he returned to the kitchen to mop the floor clean. Once, twice, three times, maybe four. The blood so thickened the strands of the mop that he had to wring it by hand. Was the skylight Tiffany? No, it was not. Okay. Yeah. By then, John needed a respite, according to NewJersey.com. And what this means is that he got hungry and made a sandwich. Yeah. Mm-hmm, of course. I, this is so common. We see this a lot. Like, yeah, that, people, that axe killer. Yeah, and Velisca <laughs> and stuff. And there's, there's other cases where they're like, I have a lot of killings to do. I gotta have a snack. People gotta eat. They do. They gotta eat. And, like, it's thirsty work killing people. So... After that, the bespectacled middle-aged man with a receding hairline and obtrusive nose made himself a sandwich and sat at the kitchen table to eat. When asked decades later by newswoman Connie Chung how he could do such a thing, she said, you've just murdered your wife and mother. You make a sandwich? List offered a perfectly ordinary and logical response. He was hungry. When you're hungry, you make a sandwich. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. Uh, And that's an end quote for that. As for the children, they were all shot as they entered the back door to the house, the kitchen. As I mentioned, there's that back door. It's like a split barn door type thing. And they were coming home from school. So Patty had left early that day because she had cramps. And when she left school, she had walked to a local sub shop to wait for John to come and pick her up, which he did. And then um, Patty walked in the door, and I think he was behind Patty. And once she was inside the house, he shot her in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Little Fred hadn't seen it coming either. I believe he was also coming home from school in the back door. John shot him in the head. That was it. John Jr. did see it coming, though, apparently, and he put up a fight. John grappled with him in the kitchen, ultimately shooting him 10 times before the ordeal was over, so there was probably considerable wrestling about. After they were all dead and done, John loaded them onto sleeping bags and dragged their lifeless bodies from the kitchen into the ballroom and then attempted to clean up. So he used rags and paper towels and tried to mop up all the blood and put it in the paper shopping bags and stuff and tried to clean up and did okay. But again, this was a big job and he probably didn't really get that. And then he turned the thermostat down, but not to preserve the bodies as people originally intended. John confessed in a jailhouse interview that he had done this so the pipes didn't burst because the house had been foreclosed upon and the bank now owned it. And if the pipes burst, this would be an inconvenience on the bank, so he doesn't want to do that. Turn the heat down. Oh. It was just a weird logic thing and not the logic we think of. Wow. hmm Yeah. After that, John fled. And that, as they say, is that. John died of complications from pneumonia at age 82 on March 21st, 2008. Wow. Didn't realize it was that recent. While imprisoned, um, and he was taken to St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton. That's where he died. This is a hospital I've been to a ton of times to visit family members. Hmm. So it weirds me out a lot because it was also a long time ago, and he could have been there. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Who the hell knows? That is the long and rambling story of New Jersey's most famous, most horrible crime, wow. the List family murders. Whew. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. It is. You know what's frustrating, though? All it's of like, it. <laughs> yeah, all of it is frustrating. But, like, 
He was having money troubles. He couldn't find a job. And the minute after he kills his family and then leaves, he gets a job. Yeah, just fine in Colorado. He could have just moved. They could have just lived in a smaller home. Like even even to well, a good size home. That's the other thing. If you'll recall in the letter, he says like, well, I mean, like we could have gone on welfare, but that's like, it looks so bad. It's so embarrassing mm. to be on welfare. He would not accept help. And that's part of this personality disorder also know. is that he will not outsource anything, nor will he accept mm. help. It's so frustrating. Yeah, because he could he could have easily gotten out of this. He could have declared mm -hmm. bankruptcy. He could have applied for government aid. He could have sold the house and moved. He didn't want people to know. He so badly didn't want people to know that he had failed money-wise, that he was taking the train to an, a non-existent job every day, and then he killed his whole family. Right. So, yeah. What? I know. It's crazy because it's one of those things, like, when we do these cases, mm -hmm. it does feel like um, it's like a recipe for disaster. So he had this personality trait mm -hmm. and then his wife was also like hiding the secret and just yeah. deteriorating. Yeah. And so she was also no support for him. Mm -mm. And then his mom was just like senile up in Poor the Alma's <laughs> up in the attic. She's she like, was... how are the grandchildren? Yeah, how are was... you guys doing That is there? precisely correct. She was foolishly just happy about it. Yeah, you guys doing okay? How's oh. a doggy? Do you need a little sandwich? Do you want me to make you a baggie when you go to the, go to your job? Oh, you go to the train again? How cute. You're so cute. But she also made him weird when he was a kid by being like, don't talk to people or go to dances. Oh, 100%. So. She was probably just like, your little Patty's a whore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's very possible. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing is a recipe for disaster. Love her to death, but she's a whore. Mm, you know how all those whores are. She dances with boys. She dates a boy four years older than her. It's wild. Mm -hmm. She's a wild girl. 16 and 20. I don't love that. I don't either. I know. Anyway. I don't know. Toast? Toast. Two. Boy, oh boy. Obviously, the all the victims in this case, which would be Alma List, Helen List, Patricia List, John Frederick List, and Frederick List. Yeah. So toast to them. With anybody else? We do. Ooh. We have two patrons. <gasps> two patrons. Yes. Who are they? I love them already. They've taken pity on our mortal souls in this yeah. time of need. <laughs> we have two best fiends forever this week. Ooh. First up is Robin Smith. Robin Smith. And Amanda Holmes. Oh, Amanda. I know Amanda. She's yeah. great. Cheers. We love you both. Thank you so much for supporting us. Um, and watch Host Mortem afterwards or listen to it because now you get access. It's really fun. Exciting. We talk about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Or no stuff. Weird. Some stuff. Mostly weird stuff. <laughs> and if we lived under the iron fist of a religious obsessive fanatic, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. 
I think every neighborhood should have a donkey.